Who can give the best advice for entrepreneurs? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today I'm interviewing Guy Kawasaki. Guy's known as being an expert in entrepreneurship. He's written six books, including The Art of the Start. In January 2006, Guy started a blog that quickly gained a large readership. I went to visit him for this interview in Palo Alto at a venture capital fund he runs called Garage Technology Ventures. Guy, a Hawaii native, was in one of his trademark Hawaiian Aloha shirts. While Guy has become a well-known authority in entrepreneurship, not many people know his full background. How did he get his insights into entrepreneurship? And how did he become known as an expert in entrepreneurship? Get ready to hear his story. Guy, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you very much. So I know most people know you uh, earliest for doing your work at Apple, but tell me a little bit about your career before that and kind of how you got started in school, your first job. I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii, and I left Hawaii to go to undergraduate school at Stanford. At Stanford, I majored in psychology because that was the easiest major I could find. Because I'm a good, diligent Oriental, I decided to listen to my parents who wanted me to be a lawyer. So after Stanford, I entered the UC Davis Law School, but I only lasted two weeks. I quit. Um, I went back and worked at Stanford, and then I returned the following year to to the mainland to go to an MBA program at UCLA. And while I was at UCLA's MBA program, believe it or not, I started working for a jewelry manufacturer, which after I graduated from UCLA, I stayed at the jewelry manufacturer. So while all my other friends were going to consulting firms and investment banks, I went and counted and sold diamonds. Uh, After that, uh, I was bitten by the computer bug when I first saw really an Apple I, but Apple II was the first computer I owned, which was an eye-opening experience for me. And one of my friends from Stanford at the time was starting to work for the Mac division, and he brought me into the Mac division as a software evangelist. So my first job was the software evangelist job at Apple. I did that for about four years, and then I started a software company called ACIUS, which is a Macintosh relational database publisher. And then I went through a period of consulting and speaking and writing. Um, Eventually, I I returned to Apple as an Apple Fellow in 1995, and I take that back. Yes, 1995. And then in 1997, I left to start Garage.com, which is today Garage Technology Ventures. So tell me what that was like coming from the jewelry business, and you get hired to be a software evangelist. I mean, I think anyone outside the tech industry has never heard of someone getting hired to be an evangelist unless well, they're a minister. there was an intermediate stop, but a very brief one, for a small software company in downtown, or not downtown, in Los Angeles. So I had a little bit of software background, but your point is accurate and true and insightful that I had no technical background. And to this day, I have no technical background. So I attribute my getting in the door basically to nepotism, that uh, Mike Boych, who is the guy at Apple who was my classmate at Stanford, he basically got me the job because on paper, certainly there was no reason to hire me. Um, So, you know, that just proves it's better to be lucky than smart sometimes. (laughs) That's a good lesson. (laughs) So what do you find once you were there, what were kind of – you know, what was needed to be successful in a job like that, to be an evangelist? Well, I think 90% of evangelism is finding or being found by a great product. And in my case, it was Macintosh. 
And so I found this great product, or it found me. And when I saw it, you know, if I thought the Apple II was eye-opening, my God, the Macintosh was absolutely mind-opening. So I just fell in love with the technology from the first day, and I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate that Mike gave me a job. I was fortunate that either Steve Jobs didn't know my background <laughs> or did know and ignored it. But somehow um, it worked out, and you know, it's kind of proof to me that most people think that the ideal qualifications for a person are based on his educational experience or his work experience. I would make the case that there's at least a third variable, which is do you get it? Do you understand the product? Do you love the product? So I'm proof that the third factor can be as important, if not more important, than the first two factors. Uh, so once you were in there, how do you measure your success as an evangelist? I mean, if you're a programmer, you can see if the code's buggy or not. If you're a business guy, you can look at the numbers. Well, first, I would debate that it's easy to measure a programmer's quality, too, because you know, typically the programmer can say, it's not my code that's buggy. Um, and you know, how do you measure a programmer in lines of code per day? The way you measure an evangelist, the position I was in, was how many pieces of software were shipping for Macintosh. And that was pretty easy. <laughs> it was either shipping or not, and you counted. Um, but the point that you're trying to make, I think, is that evangelism is the process of the selling the dream and getting people to believe in something. So how do you measure how many people believe in something? And uh, that is a non-trivial task. Now, in sales, you'd say how many people bought a Macintosh, right? But really, the test for me was either how many pieces of software shipped or how many developers believed in Macintosh. And that is a little more difficult to measure, yes. So Apple's a fun company. When you were working there the first time, what got you to leave? What got me to leave is basically I started listening to my own hype about how great the Macintosh software opportunities were. And I wanted to start a software company and really make big bucks. So that's, that's one explanation. A second explanation is that the person who I was working for at Apple towards the end of my career, I had a job uh, review or a performance review. And he told me that the reason why they weren't promoting me to a director-level position at Apple was because... Ashton Tate, Lotus, and Microsoft did not like me. Now, you have to understand that those were the big three names of software back then. And yet, all the little developers who really made Macintosh successful loved me. So, uh, so to be quite honest, I was so insulted by the thought that I wasn't getting promoted because Microsoft, which was copying our interface, Lotus, who didn't get it, and Ashton Tate, who truly didn't get it, they were determining my career path. And so that's the moment that I just said, I'm out of here. So that's the total story. So where'd you get your idea for a company? Well, at the time, Apple was working on some Apple-labeled software. And one of the products was a code named Silver Surfer. And believe it or not, Ashton Tate didn't like the fact that Apple was going to publish a relational database because their product, DBase Mac, was supposed to be so great. And so, for political reasons, Apple decided not to publish Silver Surfer to appease Ashton Tate, basically. And so, when the product was booted out of Apple, I went with it. So it became its own company? Yes, called you know, ACIUS. And to this day, it still exists. Wow. 
So what was your pitch for this company when you went around pitching it to people? How do you describe it? Well, it was a very, very programmable, customizable, easy-to-use high-end database. And it was to Macintosh what DBase was to you know, MS-DOS. And DBase for MS-DOS was very successful. So, And how do you fund this company? The other founders put in the money, basically. So what is the difference between being at Apple and then being at a startup company? Well, there is really no comparison, right? Because as entrepreneurial and fun as Apple appears and is, it's still not the same as uh, two guys in a garage or five guys in a garage. And you know, certainly you don't own as much of, you know, it's of the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just different. It's not better or worse. But it you know, I've started one, two, three companies now, and it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. And, and I haven't had this you know, sort of huge success in, in any of them, which always fascinates me that people, when I'm introduced as a speaker, say that I'm this great entrepreneur. Because I don't consider myself a great you know, I think Ted Turner is a great entrepreneur. Bill Gates is a great entrepreneur. Steve Jobs is a great entrepreneur. I don't consider myself one. Um, at all, but that's a different discussion. A rare moment of modesty. <laughs> well, what do you attribute that to? I mean, you now see a lot of, on, not the modesty, the, uh, you know, your, your experience in entrepreneurship. Do you think you just didn't happen to hit, hit it big, or do you think that, um, you know, that's not in your DNA? That's a good question. Uh, I certainly have had the opportunity to stand at the plate and get you know, balls thrown at me to hit. I haven't hit it out of the park. I've hit singles. I, I guess one factor is that a lot of being a successful entrepreneur is timing, or you could say it more negatively, is luck. And so maybe I just wasn't lucky, or maybe I just didn't have good timing, or whatever. But, you know, I said, I'm never going to be a billionaire. That's kind of earth-shattering because most people won't be. <laughs> so I, I won't be a billionaire. I, I'll never be a Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Larry Ellison or whatever. But, you know, I'm not walking around in a depression because of that. I mean, it's not clear I'd want to be them because they have their own set of issues about personal safety and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, nobody's going to kidnap me. <laughs> you know, unless they want some used power books. Uh, so, you know, whatever. That's how life goes. So with your first company, so you kind of had a single, and uh, what exactly happened with it, and how did well, that lead to being an Apple? Well, Fourth Dimension still does exist as a back yeah. relational database. Um, second company I did was Fog City Software, and it did Claris Emailer, which is an email client, as well as a list server. And the third company I'm still in the middle of, which is Garage. So... To be determined. Now, what did uh, being an Apple Fellow entail? It sounds like an awesome job title. Yeah, well, an Apple Fellow, until my fellowship, it was reserved for engineers and scientists, and they were uh, to invent the future. I'm the first non-technical, non-engineering fellow, probably the first and last. And my job was to preserve the Macintosh cult. And that was what I was brought in for, and I did not want a line position. So I just wanted to be this thing off on the side, which is what I was. And, uh, you know, it was a great time. It was, all I had to do was evangelize. 
and I didn't have to run a department. I didn't have to do a budget, all that other crap. So it was, life was good. It sounds like a fun job. It is so a fun just, job. Yeah, if you can get it, it is. <laughs> just going to conferences, talking to programmers, getting and people go, Going to user groups, yeah, and acting as a resource internally. Who do you report to for a position like that? Uh, at the time, I was reporting to either an SVP or a VP. It was me and two other people who supported me, one technically and one administratively. That was it. So, so that was the, uh, the Apple cult, but to some extent, it's always a Steve Jobs cult. Do you have any good Steve Jobs stories from your time there? Uh, you know, not really. I mean, he's a great CEO, great sense of aesthetics, definitely can change you know the future and all that kind of good stuff uh everybody who has a chance should work for a steve jobs or the steve jobs once in their life it's a great experience but i guess it's sort of like playing for vince lombardi or you're too young to know who vince lombardi is but it's one of those kind of experiences it's good to go through once you finished with the apple fellowship was it right after that that you started garage or was yes it something? yes i started garage and left the fellowship. That was the sequence of events. Leaving the fellowship, that sounds very... Uh... Like leaving the church, you mean? Yeah. I yeah. got excommunicated? <laughs> so uh, what was your concept for a garage? Like, when did it formulate the original, in your mind? Well, it started very originally as we were going to do a site, a content website based on advertising for the booming cities of the world. So in any given booming city, so we have boomcities.com, let's say we pick Shanghai, so for the Boom Cities website for Shanghai, you would explain how to do business in Shanghai, how to raise capital, how to do marketing, all that. So each city would be how to navigate and do business in the booming cities. So we came with that idea to a guy named Craig Johnson at Venture Law Group, and he said, well, rather than doing this content advertising-based website, which who knows if advertising will take off, and you have to understand this is 1997 or so, why don't you focus on just the part of the business that's helping people find capital, specifically helping people find venture capital or angel capital? And so what we would do is the theory was we would find two guys in a garage. They would need capital. So there are many guys in garages looking for money. There are many f sources of money, but a lot of times the two don't know about each other. So we would act in the middle and being a broker, helping the entrepreneur find the money. So we did that for about the first three or four years. It was very successful, but then the bubble burst, and nobody was writing checks. So our business model was based on the fees for helping people raise money. And since no one was raising money anymore, you don't get fees. So then we changed from being a broker-dealer intermediary helping entrepreneurs find investors to becoming a direct investor ourselves. So now we act as a venture capital firm and write checks directly as a principal. That ah, sounds like more fun. More uh, it, is, it is more fun, but, well, it's not more fun. It's just different because now you don't have to beg someone to write a check. And then you don't have to beg for your fees. On the other hand, you are really losing your money now. So it's different. Now, is this your money or did you raise a fund for this? It's our money in the sense of, People invested in Garage and funded Garage. And it's also we're acting as a general partner for money we raise from CalPERS. And so those two sources are put into one fund. And how large is that? $20 million. So it's not that big a fund either. So um, that's what we do. 
Right. So tell me about the challenges with that. I mean, a lot of people in the venture business will say a hundred million is small. You know, it's hard to get enough management fees and carry to make it worthwhile to do a hundred million. They go raise billion dollar funds. Yeah, so. but you know, I would also make the case it's hard to put a billion dollars at play. Don't get me wrong. I wish we had a larger fund, but one description of venture capital is that you get people to give you money and for you to invest in. And if you make money, you make some of that money. And they're paying you 2.5% per year to put that money to play. So if you are a venture capitalist and you can raise a fund, at least for the first fund, life is good. Because you get 2.5% of a billion dollars to pay for your rent and salary and overhead. And then if you take that billion dollars and you make it into 10 billion, then you make Two billion, two? I mean, life is good. Now, if you don't take the billion and make it into 10 billion, then you cannot raise a second fund, so you're out of business. But boy, while you're, do- <laughs> while you're doing that first billion, life is good. You should never feel sorry for a venture capitalist, no matter what they tell you. No matter what they tell you. That's why they all drive Mercedes and Porsches and BMWs. You know, bootstrap a venture capital firm. Do you consider yourself bootstrapping with twenty million, or is that still plenty of uh, well, space? We, we have twenty feel million sorry with three investors, you know, investing partners. So, and two and a half percent of twenty million is not that much. But you know, nobody needs to feel sorry for us either. I mean, it, it would be hypocritical for me to say that. And I'm many things, but I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> so, who do you feel sorry for now? Nobody. So, I mean, in terms of the entrepreneurs you work with. I don't even feel sorry for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's not for everybody. There's no promises. And if you make it big, you make it big. If you crash and burn, you crash and burn. Um, it's just part of the game. Uh, I suppose that we could see some venture cap, some entrepreneurs, and they have this really great idea, and they raise money, and for some reason, you know, Microsoft squashes them, or Google squashes them, or I don't know, their server crash, you know, whatever. Right? You could feel sorry for them, but. A pretty good analogy is professional sports. You know, does a coach or a general manager of a team ever feel sorry for an athlete? I guess. You know, there'll be times where the promising young careers ended with a knee injury. Yeah. But generally speaking, you know, you get paid two million bucks a year to play hockey. Life is good, man. <laughs> now, as you were saying, entrepreneurs influenced by a lot of things. I mean, there's luck, there's timing. But when you see a company, what do you look for? Is it the entrepreneur? Is it doing a market analysis? What? Well, this is the question that every VC gets asked, and every VC answers consistently by saying we're looking for a proven team with proven technology with a proven business model. And that's a load of crap because, frankly, if you look at the huge successes, I would say on those three parameters, usually the huge successes are zero for three maybe one for three. And I would say that about Apple. I would say that about Google. I would say that about Cisco and Yahoo. Um, They were not three for three there. So I could more easily build a case that you should look for an unproven team with unproven technology in an unproven market because that's the billion-dollar deal. Now, having said that, you can't exactly go to CalPERS or a limited partner and say, guess what? We want to raise the money, and the investing pre- investment premise of this fund is to find unproven people with unproven technology and unproven markets. You're not going to raise a fund that way. So you have to tell this story about how you're going to look for these, you know, whatever. Uh, 
So the, to answer your question, I like to do deals with products that I would use or I do use. That's my test. This means that my life is simple because I don't use chips. I mean, I use chips in a computer, but I don't, you know, it's whatever's in there powering yeah. it, right? I, so I like to use websites and commerce and, you know, things that I like to use. I don't do medical devices. I don't do biotech, although, you know, I take pills, obviously. Um, I do stuff like, uh, you know, Film Loop, which is a photo sharing thing, uh, because I share photos. And so that's sort of my test. That's cool. So a product you can use, and I'm sure, you know, you've gotten some notoriety. You must get plenty of deal flow. So I'm sure Film Loop came in, but I imagine you saw other photo websites. There are plenty of them out there now. So what, you know, what separates one from the other? Well, Film Loop, in this case, one of the co-founders I had known since the seventh grade. I don't know if I should admit this, but I basically make a decision that I'm interested or not in the first five minutes. I mean, I really, I either love it or I don't care anymore. In a second moment of humility, this is two in this interview, uh, I'm not proven as a venture capitalist, not at all, because I can't say I found an eBay or a Cisco or a Yahoo or a Google. So it's kind of scary. I'm unproven as a venture capitalist. I'm not proven as an entrepreneur. But so many people read my blog and books and think I know what I'm doing. It's a little scary. Although you can make the case that if you were, quote-unquote, this hugely successful entrepreneur or hugely successful venture capitalist and you wrote books and a blog and speaking, you would tend to think that everything you did or the fact that you're successful proves that you knew what you were doing. And very few writers and authors and speakers and bloggers would say, my success proves that luck matters. When in fact, that's usually the case. So perhaps the fact that I'm not proven and has forced me to think about these issues more than if I was proven, because I, I really don't think an author, uh, you know, let's say I founded a $10 billion company and I'm worth $2 billion. When I write my book, guess what? It's going to be the Kawasaki way. And I did everything right because I knew this market was going to and I knew the technology and I knew the business model. The fact of the matter is, you just got lucky. <laughs> and, but now, you know, thousands of people might read your book and say, oh, so this is how it's done. <laughs> so you're the hungry and the humble venture capitalist. Uh, let's not go too far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say I'm relatively hungry and relatively humble for a venture capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> So as you pointed out, you wrote a book. You're, uh, I think you're blogging and your goal is to be in the Technorati Top 50, yeah, right? I don't think I, no, I'm in the Top 50, although I'm at the edge right now. It's interesting. You know, I really want to be in the Technorati Top 10, but I figured out I don't think I can get there. I really don't because the people in the Top 10, they do different kinds of blogs. The kind of blogs they do are product-oriented so that or news-oriented, so you know, if I'm Boing Boing or Michael Arrington, every day I, you know, tons of press releases and people pitch me. And so today I write about a new photo sharing site. Tomorrow I write about a new phone. Next day it's a new PDA. And that stuff just comes to me. And I just, it's not easy, but you, you, you react to that and you search stuff out and you put it out as news. 
And then there's Ariana Huffington who has, you know, this staff of writers and you know, all that kind of stuff. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to essentially pass more or less tactical, timeless knowledge on, you know, how to evangelize, how to recruit, how to hire, how to fire. And, and, and I try to not only pass my knowledge on, but the knowledge of people I interview and books and, you know, stuff like that. So it takes an inordinate amount of effort to do my blog. Every day is a challenge. Now, you know, I'm sure that people who do news kind of blogs, every day is a challenge. They have to get up. They have to figure out what to write about and all that. Do I talk about the phone or do I talk about the computer or do I talk about the new website, right? That's a kind of challenge. And I have to go look at all those three things and decide which one is worth writing about, which one isn't. I have to get up in the morning and say, God, what am I going to write about today? You know, I've already done evangelism. I've done hiring. I've done firing. I've done pitching. I've done PowerPoint. I've done how to get to a VC. I've done the top 10 lies of everybody who's worth hearing about what they lie about. What am I going to write about? And if Motorola introduces a new phone, you know, from time to time, I can write about that. But people don't come to my site to learn about Motorola's new phone. So that's the challenge for me. And I don't think my kind of blog can get to the top 10. Because uh, there's not enough people who will link to that. You know, there's lots of people who want to be on top of the new hardware news and software news. But entrepreneurship, marketing, sales, and all that, I don't know. Of course, I just lost a whole bunch of links from France. because I, <laughs> I, don't, know if you, I don't know if you saw my latest blog or yesterday's, but I, I put up a blog about these very sarcastic quotes about France and the French people. And, of course, all these people got all, you know offended i want people to never know when they wake up in the morning and they come to my blog you never know what's going to be there um that's kind of my goal so it's a good writer is unpredictable i I guess i don't know we'll see so tell me a little about what you think about giving that advice i think there's a temptation as you were saying a lot of entrepreneurs universalize work what worked for them in their market. And there's that temptation just to say, you know what, it worked for me to do a PowerPoint presentation that's five slides. Everyone should do a PowerPoint presentation that's five slides. How do you balance that when you're writing your advice? It's not clear that I do. I probably have more data because I've had hundreds, if not thousands of pitches, right? Whereas if I were the entrepreneur and I had one, I wrote one pitch and I raised $5 million and I created a $5 billion company, I'm thinking, yeah, 60 slides is what I use. 60 slides is the right way to go. I, on the other hand, have listened to thousands of people with 60 slides, 50 slides, 40 slides, 20 slides, 30 slides, 10 slides, and 15 slides, right? And I'll tell you, the right number is 10 to 20 because I have more data. So I might know better than the entrepreneur who made one 60-slide presentation, raised five million bucks, and created a billion-dollar company about what works for a presentation. Now, you could make the case that maybe the entrepreneur knows better because he's proven he's created this billion-dollar company with his 60 slides. I would make the case that if he had a 60-slide presentation and he got funded, that was luck, that the venture capitalists looked beyond the stupidity of his slides, <laughs> or it was pure dumb luck. So it doesn't escape me that... <laughs> I might not be right either. Now, you know, this idea of expertise and being an expert always fascinates me. And as you pointed out, there are people who probably, you know, had bigger hits than you and aren't experts, rightly or wrongly. And, you know, there are probably life coaches out there. I'm sure there are that, you know, have done less than you professionally and might have bigger followings. So 
What have you kind of found are the dynamics of becoming an expert and, uh, you know, what's it like to be one and to have that expectation? I would say that a good test is that if you meet a person who says he's an expert in something, it means he's not. Basically, it means he's full of it. Being labeled an expert is something that's done by other people upon you, not you upon yourself. And so it's kind of like being in the top 10 of Technorati. You know, if you try too hard, (laughs) maybe it means you shouldn't get there. Of course, I can be accused of that. To take an extreme, let's say Peter Drucker, who hopefully people have heard of. I don't think Peter Drucker spent a whole lot of time proving to the world he was an expert. It's just the world recognized him as an expert. And that's the test. And so in a sense, I've you know, sort of matured in my view of Technorati, which is if I rise high in the rankings, that's great because it means that I'm being acknowledged. And if I don't, then either I should write better stuff or understand that what Technorati rankings are doesn't matter. I think Seth, Seth Godin has a better attitude than I do. You know, he says he never checks the rankings. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, sounds good. Maybe one day I'll wake up and I'm number 10. But just as easily, one day I'll wake up and I'm number 99. Meanwhile, I enjoy my blog very much. I love to do it. Uh, it's an intellectual challenge. I probably will turn it into a book someday. And I think I'm doing a lot of good with the blog. And... It's enormously satisfying. It's very good for my brand. It brings deal flow. I am going to hire an online assistant because I just cannot handle my flow anymore. I get 300 emails a day, and I have a great idea for a product I'll tell you about. Okay, so I'm going to write a blog entry about my idea called open source email. Okay, so this is how it's going to work. Open source email means that anybody can read personal email to me and answer it for me. And so, now obviously, I'm going to have to give some people a secret email address that truly only gets to me. But I would say most of my email doesn't have to be answered by me. I was at this presentation, and I'd like to get your your PDF, which I've already given out to 500 other people, right? So one of those 500 people could say, oh, I already have it. Here it is. And so it would be like this Gaiapedia. Um, it would be a, and, and people would say, you know, uh, I get messages all day like, what do you think of naming my company, you know, I don't know, Schmazoo. So all these people could get my email and say, Schmazoo is a stupid name, which is what I would say too. So then I'll have open source email, and then it'll be just like Wikipedia. Over time, the best answers will come out, and the person will be answered. And I don't have to answer email anymore. That's my new idea. I haven't quite gotten all the kinks out yet, but so that's... Now, can you take that a step further and do that for your investment decisions, too? Well, that's a, uh, not, by, not if I want to raise a fund, no. <laughs> I'm sure Calpers would yeah. love to hear but that. But you know what? On my blog, from time to time, I run a type of blog called a reality check. And many times, but not always, reality checks reflect companies that have come to us for money. And I don't know if it's good or bad. Not that I ever know if it's good or bad. But I would like one more data point. So I write a reality check, you know, new kind of social content site or new kind of online software tool. 
And I write a blog and I tell people, well, thumbs up or thumbs down. And I can't tell you that if 80% say thumbs up, we invest in 20%. You know, I, it's not that. But it's good to see that most people think it's stupid or most people think it's smart. And the comments are very useful because they many times when you put up an idea, they'll say, well, but this other thing already does this or I can do this already with this. And in due diligence, you always are wondering, oh, so what am I missing? You know, Is there this like other site that somebody knows about that already does all this and I don't know about it yet? So it's a way of doing due diligence online, a little bit of market testing. Now, at the end of the day, even if 90% of the people say this is a stupid idea, we might still do the deal because we either believe or we're stupid or, you know, whatever. Everybody believes, or not everybody, but lots of people believe in the wisdom of the crowd. Well, you know, the wisdom of the crowd, the crowd has done some pretty stupid things. You know, look at the politicians the crowd elect, right? So that's a way of doing open source due diligence, if you will. Yeah, it's a kind of a pretty revolutionary idea, and especially since, well, maybe not revolutionary, but many VCs view their deal flow as one of their biggest assets. It's what they spend all the money on their logo, in your case, all your time on your blog. Right. To develop, you worry that you know, someone else is going to say, hey, guys, looking at this, let's call up these companies. And uh, You mean and, and call the company that I do the reality check on and... Yeah, offer them some money, drive up the valuation. You know, I suppose that could happen, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. It's not clear that any other VCs read my blog because VCs are so arrogant. I think most VCs would refuse to believe that they could learn something from another person. So <laughs> that means that no VCs are reading my blog, so I don't have to worry. Uh, I would also make the case that even if I do have to worry and it could happen, the upside of learning what people will say about the idea in advance and to see if any other competitive products or services are out there far outweighs the paranoid fear that, oh my God, I would love to be able to say that Kleiner Perkins read about or Sequoia read about a product on my blog and liked it so much they invested in a company. I could see that. I view that as the glass is half full, baby. Because then what will happen is if word got around that if Guy does a reality check on your company, on his blog, and people from Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and Draper Fisher Jurvetson are reading his blog and following what reality checks are happening, if that word got out, I would be inundated by reality check requests, right? And then I would charge 25 grand to put up a reality check. Because when you go to demo, Guess what? Those people paid, I don't know, 15, 20,000 bucks to be on stage, right? So they paid 15 or 20 to be on stage. They hired a PR firm for two months at 10 grand a month. It's 20 grand. They spent 5,000 on hotel and all that. You know, all told, probably cost 40 or 50 grand to be on stage for demo, right? And you reach 400, 500 people. Now, those 500 people include Michael Arrington and Scoble and all that stuff, right? So they in turn reach hundreds of thousands of people. So for 50, 40 grand, you can reach 500 people and you might get into CNET and all. You might get one little line in a CNET article, right? For 25 grand, you can be the whole blog entry. <laughs> and I have, I don't know how you count. I have 21,000 RSS feeds. I have um, 10,000 page views a day. So that is, it's not as simple as adding 10 plus 20 and getting 30, right? So it's, but it's, Somewhere north of 10, somewhere south of 30, right? So let's call it 20,000. 
So 25 grand, 20,000 people read it, including Sequoia and Kleiner Bergens. This is a deal. So then life is good. I'll, like, I'll do reality check every day at 25 grand a pop. Life is good. I don't need to be a VC anymore. Okay, so let's say it's not 25 grand. Let's say it's 5,000 to run a reality check. And you can run what? One a week. Well, it's 5,000 times 52. I mean, you know, <laughs> you play for a lot of hockey tickets. Yeah. Um, so why not? And you know what? It's good for everybody. It's good for me. 5,000 bucks, post a blog entry. It's good for the entrepreneur. 5,000 bucks to get exposed to 20,000 people at one shot. Some people object to the fact that I do such things in my blog, that I promote products that we've invested in, that I would do reality checks, that I would rag on the French, that, you know, whatever. And I think what people mistake is that this is my blog. It's my blog. It's not your blog. And it's free. And... You don't get to tell me what's appropriate for my blog. If you don't like my blog, don't read it. It's that simple. And I, I don't think this attitude goes over too big in the blogosphere. But I really do believe that. And I believe in polarizing people. If you don't like my blog, don't read it. If you like it, read it. Now, this is not to say that I won't listen to feedback. So if everybody says, you know, one thing that I do in my blog or something sucks, I'm not oblivious to it. But... If one person says, you know, you should stop talking about your portfolio companies, that has as much effect as a raindrop hitting a battleship. So how do you spend your time now? You, you came back here, you had to hook up your laptop to back it up yeah. because you haven't been in the office for a long time. Well, how do you spend your day? If you really want to know, I probably spend two to three hours a day answering email. Two to five hours a day blogging. Two or so hours a day, some kind of garage, venture capital, whatever. And two hours on many days playing hockey. <laughs> I hope that doesn't add up to more than 24. <laughs> but that's the order of magnitude of things that I do. Um, I had no idea when I started blogging that it would take three to five hours a day. And so if I were just doing email, life would be good. If I was just blogging, life would be good. But doing, doing both is very difficult. That's why I have to get a virtual assistant. Or open source email. I could do open source blogging, I suppose. But that, you know, that's Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty much wrapping up. I mean, is it I 45 think... minutes already? Yeah, it shot right by. Ah. But, you know, to close out, you've been very candid. I, I was really taken <laughs> aback and very humble. So I don't know if your audience is going to learn anything from this interview, but that's kind of where I'm at. Okay? Well, that's exciting to hear. All Thanks right. a lot for coming on the show. Good. My pleasure. That's all for my interview with Guy Kawasaki. Hope you enjoyed it. You can continue to interact with this show by going to our website, www.venturevoice.com, where you can find in the show notes quotes that Guy mentioned, links to his blog, to other things that he's mentioned in the show. You can also leave a comment to share with your fellow listeners. You can send a private message to us. Or even better, call our listener line at 212 212- 461-4850 that's uh, country code 1212461-4850 
and leave a message and we might play it on the show. We've got a lot of great shows coming up for you, including coverage of the demo conference that Guy mentioned on this show. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.